morning, everybody. It is great to see you here. It really is. Um, that is the coolest introduction to romance I think I've ever seen. I'm serious. I need to swipe that and take it to work with me and use it in a class or something. It's, always, it's great to just to be together. I'm, it's, um, and those of you who are online, you're probably you know, with people you love as well. Um, it reminds me that God has created us as creatures in bodies. Therefore, my bodily life is important. I live an embodied life, and therefore, when we are close to one another, it really means something. Do you feel that sometimes? Yeah, I think, you know, if nothing else, COVID has taught us that big lesson, right, to value exactly what it means to be present to each other. Well, I'm so glad that uh, we're starting the series on Romans. It is a wonderful book. It is, it is, it is delightful. It's complex. It's kind of long. Um, but I think you're going to find that it's going to be a book that you'll go back to again and again throughout your life. And I think what we'll hope to do in the next few weeks is to entice you to make Romans a part of your growing in Christ. Well, before we get there, I want to ask uh, a couple of questions about you. First of all, have you had much experience with catastrophes? Some people would say we're living in a catastrophe right now. True enough. I mean, you look at the economic stuff, you look at COVID, you look at everything, you know, the politics that are coming up November 3rd. It's like, oh my gosh, uh, this feels catastrophic. Have you ever looked at your own life or your own circumstances and you think to yourself, this is a mess. My life is a mess. It's a disaster. My life is a catastrophe. I talk to some people who are in their 20s and their 30s and they say, you know, I look to the future and I just feel like the, the, the wheels are coming off. I just don't know if there's anything beyond catastrophe that I can see. Sometimes life can surprise you like that. Life can disappoint you. We can surprise and disappoint ourselves. But I'm convinced that it's inside of catastrophes you actually find out where your faith is at. I really do. Inside of catastrophes, inside of our difficulties, we begin to wonder, we begin to struggle with, is God actually near us? Is God somebody who sees our catastrophes and he says, oh, well, good luck with that, or I told you so, or instead does he move toward catastrophes, get involved in those things, and then brings about some solution or redemption? Uh, for some reason, I have got a number of friends here in Grand Rapids who come out of developing world countries, um, both in Central Africa and the Middle East, Syria, Iraq, especially, and then Congo, Uganda, and so forth. Anyway, um, they're refugees, and they're living in Grand Rapids. So I know a number of these people, and they know what the word catastrophe means. They've lived through civil wars that you and I can't even imagine. They've lived through famine we don't even know what famine is. They've lived through experiences where they have lost their homes, completely devastated, destroyed, become refugees and arrive in this country with nothing but their clothes. That is a catastrophe. For a lot of us inside of our time, our community here, we've got other catastrophes that we have to deal with. I mean, what about losing a job? That's a huge catastrophe, or losing your health. You know, feeling like you're this robust, athletic, agile person, and then suddenly, bam, something hits you, and you think, well, how did that happen so fast? 
With this economic downturn, there are a lot of people who have lost enormous wealth. They see all of their investments just going out the window. Those people who are in psychology, who are therapists, their caseloads are actually on tilt. Because of the period we are living now, people are running to get, be in been counseling, to be in therapy, because they want to resolve the kinds of things which are really troubling them. The problem in a catastrophe is you begin to lose hope. You begin to wonder if there's ever going to be a way out. Where's the exit for this whole thing? And so that is why we start to ask, does God care about our situation? That is why, does God care? Is he aware even? And so therefore, questions about God's character end up in the middle of discussions about catastrophes. So if there's a real catastrophe and God's character is to really love us and be good, then is he here? Is he intersecting with us? That's the question. So therefore, looking at God's character, thinking about God's character, is essential to talking about catastrophes. I need to know, is God willing to step into my situation? Or is God someone who simply gives up? Now, the book of Romans actually discusses this whole idea of catastrophes. It is Paul's most eloquent and thorough diagnosis of our situation. We call it Paul's letter to Rome, but it really reads like an essay. It has some personal notes at the beginning and the end, but it reads like an essay. And actually, we think that we have multiple copies that went to different churches. But nevertheless, we know that Paul is at the, he's at the end of his third great missionary tour. He's dreaming about a fourth missionary tour to Spain and to Rome. Everybody is telling him when he goes back to Jerusalem, he's going to get arrested and he's not going to get that fourth tour. He doesn't get the fourth tour. So we think that Paul is at this turning point in his own life where he decides, if I don't make it to Rome and to Spain, then I'm going to write out the essential things that I teach when I'm in a synagogue. That is why we have here in Romans a kind of catalog, a digest really, of the great ideas that Paul wants to bring across. And we're fortunate that he did it. Now, when Paul looks at the world that we live in, he is really pretty catastrophic when he thinks about it. I mean, he looks at our world and he thinks, you know, there is so much difficulty, so much that is broken inside of our world, there is virtually no way to escape it. So Paul says the state of things we have is simply catastrophic. And therefore, you've got to look to see how God steps in. If you want a good example of this from an Old Testament story, there's a marvelous story in Genesis about this young guy named Joseph. You guys probably know the story. Nice 17-year-old high school boy with an overinflated ego. And so what happens is his brothers don't like him. He gets crammed into a well. And then they take him out of the well. They sell him to slave traders. He ends up going to Egypt. And he does well in Egypt. He's still a slave. and he's Pharaoh's household. And then somehow the story all ends up well because God steps into the entire story. If you think your family is messed up, read the story about Joseph in Genesis. Really messed up. You haven't been sold to a slave trader yet, have you? So anyway... Joseph's story actually is wrestling with this same thing. What a catastrophic family experience. And yet, the question is, what is God's relationship to that? Paul and the Joseph story in Genesis probes this same question. Catastrophes, God's presence or absence. How do these two go together? 
Now, in terms of catastrophe, I think we've actually seen what, is, what might become one of the worst catastrophes of this decade only a couple of months ago. Do you folks remember that it was back in August, there was this breathtaking explosion that went down in a Middle Eastern country called Lebanon, in their capital city, Beirut. Do you guys remember this thing? I mean, we've virtually forgotten it with all the drama we have in the news right now. But let me tell you about this for a moment. 3,000 tons of ammonium nitrate exploded. Now, let me tell you something about the explosion. Do you remember years ago there was that that bomb that went off in front of a federal building in Oklahoma. Do you remember that bomb? This explosion was 1,000 times bigger. Do you remember that there was that reactor in Russia that melted down, exploded, it was terrible, Chernobyl, do you remember that one? This explosion was 10 Chernobyls. That's how huge. 1,000 people in Beirut simply disappeared. We don't know what, well, we know. They were vaporized inside of the whole explosion. 300,000 people became homeless overnight. $15 billion of damage. Right next to this explosion, you'll see there are grain towers that were right there. 15,000 tons of cereal crops were stored in these grain towers. It was the main source for the entire winter for the country of Lebanon. It's all been destroyed, and they have nothing really in the forms of cereal crops for the coming year. If you wanted to put that explosion on Grand Rapids, it would look like this. If the explosion happened downtown on Monroe Street, right downtown, right, it would knock out the windows at Woodland Mall. And so therefore, all of the housing between Woodland and downtown destroyed. That's why they have 300,000 people with no homes. Now, it's not just that Beirut has been going through this. The explosion went off in August, but also their hospitals were full to capacity because of COVID. And it's not just that. In the last two years, they have had total economic collapse. In fact, what happened was that the Lebanese lira, the pound, lost 80% of its value in 2019. (laughs) Think about that for a minute. You're going around with a dollar, and today it's going to be worth 20 cents. People lost their entire fortunes because of the loss of the value of this thing. This is a catastrophic event that's beyond anything that we would ever imagine. Now, one of the things is that about me is I studied in Beirut, Lebanon as a student at the American University there. And since then, I have had a number of friends and we've kept up. And one of my friends in Beirut is a leading pastor there today. His name is Riyad Kassis. Anyway, Riyad has a daughter named Trevina. And Trevina is about 21, 22 years old. She's at the American University of Beirut. She is a nursing student and her internship hospital is right down near the port where the explosion took place. Now, Trevina decided on the evening before the explosion that she just wanted to go home to her home village and see her mom and dad. If she had stayed in her apartment, which was also destroyed, or at the hospital that was vaporized, she would not be here today. So anyway, Riyadh, her father, sends me this video that you can't find online anyplace. It was just a personal email to me, and I've got it for you. Listen to Trevina talk about catastrophe.
yesterday was supposed to be a normal day. I woke up, got into my car, drove to Beirut, drove by the port, and went to the hospital I am training in. After I finished my training and on my way to my apartment in Ashrafiyye, I said to myself, why stay in Beirut all alone tonight? Let me go home. An hour after I arrived to Zahle, a big explosion hit Beirut. It hit the deepest parts of Beirut and the closest parts to my heart. It hit the roads I was driving in this morning. It hit the hospital, hospital. I was working at. It hit my apartment and it hit my university. To the point that Beirut was named a disaster zone. Last night, the Lebanese people did not only sleep on a pandemic or an explosion. They slept on a bad economic situation, poverty, hunger, and collapse. Which leads me to ask the question the disciples asked Jesus during the storm. Teacher, do you not care if we drown? And I believe that today we all feel like we are drowning. Especially the people who lost loved ones, lost their homes, their jobs, and everything they've worked for all this time. But I believe that the Lord was there last night. I saw him in every single detail that happened. I saw him in the firefighters that were sacrificing their lives to put out the fire. I saw him in the Red Cross workers that were standing hand in hand with injured people. I saw him in every individual that opened up their homes for strangers who are in need. I saw the Lord in hospitals where doctors and nurses used flashlights because of the lack of electricity to operate on injured individuals. I saw the Lord in every country that sent help to Lebanon and stood with it side by side. And through every phone call and text message that was sent from friends around the globe to ask about their loved ones in Lebanon. I saw the Lord in the crowds of people standing outside the blood banks in Zahli in matters of seconds after the explosion in order to donate blood. And the man standing there giving out water for free. The Lord is around us and is with us and shows us his power through every individual that we meet. We ask for your constant prayer for our country, so the Lord may give us peace and comfort and hope for the future, because your prayer brings hope to every single individual in Lebanon to continue and to rise above the crisis we are in. Because the Lord says the righteous will flourish like a palm tree and will grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Min qalbi, Isn't that an amazing video, you guys? Here, this woman, just not long after she gets home, her entire city that she loves completely blows up. Now, notice how trivia, what she does, Trivina does. She pivots carefully. She describes this catastrophe. She has witnessed the destruction of her world. It is a catastrophe like no one can imagine, but she does not give platitudes about why it happened. No Christian cliches here. She simply says this. God does not abandon us. God has not abandoned Beirut. Through the eyes of the faithful, like she and her family, she is able to glimpse where God has stepped into this catastrophe and made a difference. When Paul begins to write in Romans about the way life is now in this world, he has catastrophe on his mind. So therefore, when you look at how Romans is built, you can see that it is in three sections. And so therefore, let me just give you the overview of how this book of Romans works, and this will kind of help you to see it. First of all, what Paul does is he talks about 
in section A. You can see I've got three sections here. Do you see it? A, B, and C. And the first thing is, is that I want to talk about the, he talks about the catastrophe of humanity. What Paul is trying to help us understand is that humanity is broken beyond repair. Humanity cannot repair itself. Religion and morality, all of these things simply have not helped come to our rescue to give us what we need. Only if God intervenes is there any hope at all. In catastrophes, actually, God steps in. So Paul is going to say to us in this first section of Romans, the problem with us is not simply that we have habituated ourselves into sinning. It isn't that we just have a few bad habits. No, on the contrary, the problem isn't sins. The, comp the problem is sin. We are in a state. We are in a broken state, and we cannot repair ourselves. So sin is pervasive. It is inescapable, and yet God intervenes and works to correct the problem. All right? So that's the first thing Paul wants to make very clear. God is recognizing that we have a problem. And secondly, through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, he fixes that problem. In the second section, Paul wants to talk about Israel. Now, this is a very unusual thing. Most people don't think about it very much. But actually, this section here, rarely taught in the church, is a catastrophe that Paul felt very deeply. Here, the Jewish Messiah has come, Jesus has arrived, and yet so many Jews in Paul's own community never accepted the Messiah. So that's catastrophic. And in Romans chapter 9, he describes how it breaks his heart. And how can this be? How can this happen? This is a catastrophe for Israel and for Paul. But then Paul says, God moves toward the catastrophe. He does not step away from it. There are good things that are going to come even from that. And then the third section, what Paul does in chapters 12 through 15, is he says, all right, the church needs to be an environment that is less catastrophic. This needs to be a place where we have an enclave, a safe harbor from all of the difficulties we find outside in the world. So he coaches Christians inside of the church, telling them, how is it that you can avoid bruising one another? How can you live in harmony? How can you recreate riches here when outside in the world things are so incredibly bad? So you can see in each of these cases, we are hearing Paul talk about hope for humanity, every single one of these. Paul's essay here is about restoration. God is restoring his creation. He's not simply interested in our personal salvation. That's a part of the package. But God loves his creation, and he wants to bring it back to making it right again, setting things right. God wants his creation to be where he always dreamt it would be. So let's open up Romans at the very beginning. If you have your Bible with, you might turn to Romans 1.1, and you can see here that, uh, how Paul introduces himself. Now, his opening words are really very interesting. Notice what he writes in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Now, let's just pause right that for a moment. Paul does not know these people in Rome. Rome is a very sophisticated city. Paul is very well educated. He knows how to write a sophisticated letter. But these people who are in Rome 
are wondering who this guy is who wants to come and visit. So this is Paul's first self-introduction, and he says three things here. He says, well, first of all, I am a servant of Jesus Christ. Get rid of the word servant right away. That sort of domesticates what he is really saying. The word there is slave. Paul says, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. Now hold the phone. Paul lives in a world, in the Roman world, which is deeply hierarchical. There is Caesar, there are the senators, and it goes all the way down and slaves live on the bottom. So this is also a culture that loves honor, that loves to inflate my status in that hierarchy. So therefore, Paul begins by introducing himself as a slave. Are you kidding me? He's not literally a Roman slave, but he says, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. It is shocking language. It really was shocking to people who read it for the first time. He uses that language in all of his letters, not just for himself, but for us. Okay, so first of all, he's a slave. Then the second thing he says, he's called to be an apostle. Hmm, that's interesting. This idea of apostle, apostolo, or apostolos, this concept of apostle is really well known in the ancient world. When I say apostle to you, you probably think of the 12 apostles with Jesus. No, 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 no. Apostle is someone who's a courier. He's a messenger, an envoy. That's what an apostle is. It is somebody who was sent out with an authorized message of some kind. So therefore, the second thing Paul says is that he's not just any kind of slave. He's been appointed by the person who owns him to go on an authorized trip. He is an emissary. And therefore, when you listen to Paul, you're listening to who sent him. Okay? And then thirdly, he says, I have been set apart for the gospel. This is, here, a little background. Paul's father was a Pharisee. We know this from the New Testament. Paul was a Pharisee. And when you take the word Pharisee and you turn it into Greek, it actually has its origins in this word set apart. Aphorizo. So anyway, Paul says, well, the Pharisee said, yes, we are set apart because we are righteous and all of those who are unclean, we are really not like you. Okay. Paul says, yes, I'm aphorizo. I'm also set apart, but my life has been set apart from common things so that it can be fully attached to this gospel. So therefore, Paul, there's his self-definition. I'm a slave. I'm on a mission And my entire life has been set aside so that I can be in the service to this gospel. I'm somebody who is owned. I'm somebody who is compelled. I'm somebody who is separated. Think about that. Pause for a minute sometime. And if you had given, this is Paul's elevator speech. That's what it is. So, oh, okay, nice to meet you. We're going to the 40th floor. So you've got about one minute. Tell me who you are. He says, I'm a slave. I'm on a mission. Yep. And I'm separated off from all the normal things in life so I can serve this good news, the gospel. Now, the word gospel, when I say, you know, Paul is out there to preach the gospel, you're going to think, oh, that's about Jesus Christ. Nah, the word gospel never shows up in religious language in the Roman world. It just doesn't. Nobody used it. The Christians were the first ones to use it like this. Gospel simply means a nice announcement. It's like a birthday announcement or something, or the emperor would put that out there. So therefore, he is someone set apart to carry kind of a good, happy message to everyone. 
That's what he's up to, and people want to explore that. All right, let's go further. Now what Paul does is he wants to, in verse 2, he wants to define this gospel. He's defined himself, now he defines the gospel. This gospel is of God. It is a gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Regarding his son, who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David. Now, notice the humanity of Jesus is clear. He has a genealogy. He has a lineage, and therefore he is truly human. Yes, he's a descendant of David. Yes. And who, through the spirit of holiness, was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection. Ah, so there are divine powers at work inside of him. So therefore, we have in Christ both a genuine humanity and a divine identity. See how that works? Paul is being very careful with his language. This is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him, we received grace and apostleship to call all of the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. All right, so the first thing that Paul says is, all right, if I'm going to define the gospel, I've got three ways that I'd like to define it with you. The first thing is, this is a message that comes from God. This is not a message that comes from a fevered imagination. This is not a message that somehow comes out of my own ideas about how to set right the world. In fact, this is the first fundamental idea about Romans I want you to take home. Think of it this way. There is this world that we live in, and then there is a divine world that God lives in, and therefore Paul wants us to be clear that this is a gospel that does not come from below, check my language, but it's a, it's a gospel that comes from above. Very important language. So therefore, any gospel that comes from below is a gospel that is sure to frustrate. That is going to be a human gospel, a creaturely gospel, it is a kind of antidote to the problems around us. But Paul says, no, you can't find it there. You're going to have to find something that comes from above. That's why this is the gospel of God, his first idea. We are surrounded by gospels. Everyone has a prescription for how we are going to make the world a better place. They are gospels that come from below. Paul says, nope, I'm not about that. I'm a courier from something above. Second idea he has is this is a gospel that was promised from the beginning. This gospel is not innovative. This gospel is not a novelty. The idea embedded in this message from God has been with us from the beginning. It's anchored inside of the Old Testament. That is why Paul will quote from the Old Testament again and again inside of Romans. He will use pictures and characters like Abraham inside of this, like he does in chapter 4, in order to say this is not a new story. The gospel of Jesus Christ lives in continuity with what God has spoken from the very beginning. The third thing he says is that this gospel is not simply a set of ideas. This gospel is not in order for morality. This gospel is all about one thing. This gospel is about Jesus Christ. This is a remarkable thing. It's only about Jesus, his son, one person, this son. 
This divine son, this is the idea? This is the good news. You need to know that in the ancient world, the Roman emperor loved to refer to himself as the divine son. Did you know that? In fact, Augustus minted coins with divius filius on the coin itself. It's just simply Latin that says divine son. People who read this in Rome, they had coins in their pockets that really told them that Augustus was the divine son. So Jesus is saying, well, there are some who pretend to be this son, but they come from below. But our son, Jesus Christ, comes from above. He's very different. He is the point of intersection where God has entered into this world and left an impact. All right, so let's go back and summarize what we've seen so far. And I need to ask you, I, and the, I, I think this is true, but in high school, you guys are still reading Lord of the Flies. Raise your hand if you know what that book was. Lord of the Flies, oh yes, it's everywhere. They make us read it inside of high school. It's one of my favorite books. It is such a grim book. They made two movies, one in black and white in the 1960s. It came out in 1954, I think. In the 60s, they made a black and white movie, and then it was redone about 12 years ago. But let's set up the scene for Lord of the Flies. It is, an ancient, it is a really old, old story. It's an experiment that goes all the way back into Europe. It's this. If you took a baby and you moved that baby out of civilization and put the baby in a jungle and the baby grew up with the animals, would he or she be perfectly righteous and unstained by sin? Who did I just describe? Tarzan. Yes. Forget the Tarzan movies. That's ridiculous. Those are stupid. Anyway, but that's Tarzan. And that's what the original Edgar Rice Burroughs story was all about. It was this experiment. It was the French Enlightenment. Anyway, baby in the jungle, and therefore civilization gives us sin. And therefore, if you're not influenced by civilization, you'll be sinless. So is sin simply something exterior and learned? Or is sin inherent? You see the difference? So therefore, here's the story. And this is, it's given in a lot of different forms. The Lord of the Flies is the best. So you have to have a ship that's coming near the island. It's a British ship. And all of the adults have to get killed. Okay, fine. So the adults get killed. And then on a raft, you have to have a group of boys that land on the island. And when they get onto the island, of course, you're wondering in the story, what kind of a civilization are they going to use? This is right out of the Enlightenment. This is such a sweet thing. So inside, they're all wearing beautiful British school uniforms. And you're sure they're going to immediately begin going back to class. Soon enough... They have stripped off their uniforms. They've slaughtered a pig, covered themselves in pig's blood, chopped off its head, put it on a pike, and they worship it in the jungle. How many of you guys remember this part? And who's the leader of all this? The guy who loves power, who's cruel his name is. Oh, come on, you guys, go back to the... Jack. Don't name your sons Jack. So anyway, so Jack is the head of this whole thing. Now, there is one really sort of shy, Piggy. Oh my gosh, Piggy, he's such a dear guy. He wears glasses and he's so funny and so cute. They don't like him. They crush him with a boulder. But the last remnant of civilization is this, name your sons Ralph. 
Ralph is this wonderful guy and he stands for civilization and he still says to them, there's goodness to be had. We don't have to turn into savages. And the best part is the very end of the book and the black and white movie. Ralph, we find, running down through the jungle, stopping, falling. He's got no pig's blood on him. Of course not. He is not that kind of kid. He's running away, and Jack is heading up the crowd behind him. They all have spears, and they're going to impale him. Ralph is running for his life. And he sprints across the beach in the last five minutes of the film. And just before Jack runs a spear through him, Ralph falls at the feet of a British naval officer. Huh? The camera in the original film does this deftly. Just from like from a child's point of view, the camera focuses on his feet. White shoes, white pants, white jacket, white hat. And then from a child's point of view, looking up, you see a Navy officer and on his face is, what? is going on here. Jack and the other boys, full of pig's blood, rush up to the officer and his troops. And suddenly they're children again. Now what Lord of the Flies is working out is how can there be salvation in the catastrophe of the island? How do you find it? Is it possible for the boys to construct from below hope for their society? Lord of the Flies says, no. But instead, there is only hope when there is intervention from outside. And of course, when you have a naval officer, love the Navy, in a white uniform standing like this, it symbolizes a divine intervention from above. We have no hope of, extra, of taking ourselves out of our circumstances. We only need somebody to come outside of us. So this is about one person, Jesus, who could have been a naval officer, who then comes to the island and says, stop it. He will restore order. Now, when we go to the rest of chapter one, what we find is that Paul tells some of his travel plans. We'll skip over that because I want to bring us right to verse 16. Paul writes next, look, I'm not ashamed of this gospel. Can you be ashamed of the gospel? Yeah, I'll tell you in a minute. Wow. Because it is the power of God, underline word power, that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First the Jew, and then to the Gentiles. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written. Now you see he's quoting the Old Testament. The righteous will live by faith. Now, how is it that you are going to, what has Paul got for us here? He says, first of all, he says, there should, there's, there's just no shame in the gospel at all. Here's how you're going to be shamed. If you discover that you belong to a church or an organization that thinks it's bringing salvation to our society and it's all ideas that come from below, you will be shamed. If the church constructs things that are based on politics or just simply education or some ideology that wants to promote some march here or there, these are ideas that come from below and the church throughout history has been shamed when it attaches itself to those things. But instead, Paul says, you will never be ashamed. 
if you are a representative of this message that comes from on high. This is the message from God. This is a message that doesn't belong to this world. So the first thing he says is, all right, there's no shame in this, but then he pulls the trigger on his second idea. It is all about God's, what does it say? Power. Sophisticated Romans did not use this word power, dunamis, inside of their conversations. Are you kidding? No, Paul, wait. If you've got a gospel from God, it has to be about wisdom. It has to be about reason. Maybe you have some new rules for us whereby we can organize ourselves. Maybe you have a new catalog of ethics or something. That's what a Roman expects at this point. But this notion here that there is power, the solution is power, that's crazy. That's embarrassing, a Roman would say. And that is why Paul has to say, I'm not ashamed, I'm going to tell you the truth. It is all about the power of God because there is no hope from below, there is only hope from above. And when the power of God intersects this world, we call, you'll see that as a powerful thing. In other words, when God's presence is here with us, encountering his presence sets us apart and makes us different. Um, when I was in grad school, I became friends with uh, a guy who was with me. Uh, he is African. Um, he ended up becoming a bishop in Central Africa. His name is Kwame Bidiako. Anyway, Kwame and I became friends. We kept up. And uh, Kwame, well, I, those, you ever had a conversation you never forget? Here's mine. So Kwame and I were hanging around our university, and Kwame says to me, uh, we're, we're comparing Western church, African church, you know, generalizations, the way everybody does in grad school. Anyway, what's the difference? You know, and he said, I really feel sorry for you in the West, and especially for you in America. I feel sorry for you. Wow, how rude. Anyway, I said, well, how do you feel sorry for us? And he says, because you've lost the gospel. You think the gospel is about reason and intellectual endeavors, defending the faith with all of your nice rational arguments. That's not the gospel. We in Africa have kept the gospel. The gospel is about power. It's about the presence of God encountering a person. That's the gospel. He said, well, how does it show up? And he says, well, in our churches, when you walk into worship, It'll just blow you away because the, the presence of Christ is so palpable. He said, you know, it's common for pastors to do an exorcism or do a healing. These things are really common. So I thought, whoa, that's not... I, you don't see that in Presbyterian churches too often. <laughs> it's my background. Anyway, so I said, okay, Kwame, I see. All right, so we've lost it in the West. I would like to come and visit. I would. I said, I'll fly to Africa. I don't know when, but I'd like to come and you can take me into one of these churches and I'd like to see this, you know? And at first he said, yeah, that'd be cool. You can come to Uganda. Then you could see it on his face. He switched. He said, no, nah, I don't think so. What? And he says, you know, he said, we're really tired of tourists and we find that Christian tourists, because of their lack of faith, dampen the power of the Holy Spirit in our churches. So yeah, we don't want you to come to Africa. That's really okay. You can work things out in America. <laughs> what? Slap one, slap two. How rude is this guy? But it's a conversation I'll never forget. 
to a degree, Kwame was right. We have made our faith a faith of wisdom and reason, and we forgot that it's all about the presence of God. So it's like this. Here's what somebody else described it as. Think about it like this. You're inside of a house. This is Paul in the first chapter. You're inside of a house, and the house is on fire. The house is on fire, and you're upstairs, and all of your valued stuff is all around you, but you know the house is on fire, and you have got to answer, can I control this fire? Can I douse this fire? Can I stop this fire and save my stuff? You're in a house on fire, but actually what's happening is the fire is growing, and it's growing, and it's getting out of control more and more and more, and at some point, you look around the house and you say, oh my gosh, I've stayed too long. And the fire and the flames and the smoke are really engulfing you. It's all over the place. And you say to yourself, I'm done. I, I, did, I couldn't do it. I couldn't manage. And then, and then, you happen to look through the flames, you look through the smoke, and you see the faint outline of a fireman. He sees you and he's waving like this. Run, come to me. And at that moment, you've got to make some decisions. You have to admit the house is on fire. You have to admit that you cannot save it. And you have to run for your life to the only one who can show you the exit. You throw all of your hope on this masked and suited man standing in your living room because he alone can save you. This is what Paul is going for. Understanding that when you're on the island and Jack is in charge, you need a naval officer. Understanding that when you're in a burning house, you have to look for the one path of escape, and it so happens only a fireman can take you there. The only way in a catastrophe you'll find the way out is when you discover that God is there to assist you. So what Paul wants to say to us is he wants to say, well, this is a key word throughout Paul. He says, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. See it there? A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This word, righteousness, is going to be huge all the way through Romans. This is a gigantic word for Paul. <clears throat> it's basically dikaiosune. It is a Greek word that um, is very commonly known. Do you know when you go to court in America... <clears throat> Well, I don't think you've been to court lately, but in case you're in court next time, on your way into the court, you'll see this woman who's got a blindfold and scales. She's holding scales there. Her name is DK. She is the daughter of Zeus. And DK was, she is the one, it stands for justice. DK means the goddess of justice. That's who she is. That's why you're going to get justice in court. So dikaiosone, this Greek word righteousness, actually means setting things right. That's what the word means. So it could be setting things right with God. Yes, the gospel is about setting things right with God, but it's also setting things right with you and all of your life. It is setting creation right. It's revealing what is right. It's bringing rightness to the world. That's the gospel. 
the Navy has arrived and it's time to wash off the pig's blood. Give up the house because there's a solution and it will take faith and trust to run for it. When I realize that, that my hope does not come from below, <clears throat> but my hope comes from above, catastrophes can suddenly become celebrations. Because that means I can live inside of a catastrophe. And because there is hope in God, then it's possible for me to survive the despair and depression that comes with a catastrophe. That is Trevinia over in Beirut. Is that young woman going to survive? What do you think? Yes, she will, and her friends. Catastrophes can now become celebrations because God is committed, number two, to the renewal of humanity and his creation. The gospel is not simply about personal salvation. The gospel is about restoration of this entire creation. God does not abandon his creation, no matter how messed up it is. He's committed to restoration. And lastly, if we have this right, if we have this right, then in the catastrophe of lives we live, that we are carriers of the gospel of God and not below, but from God, we can bring hope to a hopeless world. Those who come to us with a gospel of politics, no thank you because we've seen where that goes. But we carry the gospel from another place, the gospel of God, and hope arises when this gospel arrives. So if you've been thinking in your catastrophe, personal catastrophe, or if you look around at the catastrophe of our country right now, if you are looking at this catastrophe and thinking God has left the scene, Think again. God has not abandoned you. God has not abandoned us. God has not abandoned Beirut. God has not abandoned the island. God has not abandoned us in the burning house. He loves his creation. He's eager to step toward it. And in catastrophes, he's drawn in to save us. Let's pray together, shall we? Oh Lord, we pray that you would give us the courage to recognize the island we live on, the house that is burning. Give us the courage to flee to where our salvation truly lies. Thank you for loving our creation, loving us, and redeeming the catastrophes that surround us. <clears throat> we pray in Christ's name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Amen.